0: Now, if you would look with me in Daniel chapter 8, we've been studying through the book of Daniel. Unfortunately, I'm sorry I wasn't here for the last two Sundays. I wanted to look at chapter 7 over two weeks because the first part is the vision of the various animals that Daniel had seen. And the second part, I wanted to focus on the image of the Son of Man that Daniel sees in that vision as well. But unfortunately, I I had a couple of bulging discs, and I was just off my feet. So here we are, and it's Hanukkah. So I want to pass over chapter 7 and move to chapter 8, and we'll come back to chapter 7. But if you look at chapter 8, notice first of all, it says, In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign. Now, if you go back to chapter 5, you'll see at the very first verse, it says, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet and we know that at the end of that banquet he dies and the kingdom of Babylon falls and when we look at chapter 6 we notice that Daniel is ministering and it was during the time of Darius's reign who was one of the Persian or Median rulers. So when we get to chapter 8 we're actually out of chronological sequence. The events of chapter 8 actually occur before the events of chapter 5. So I just want you to take note of that. This, in chapter 8, is in the third year of King Belshazzar's reign. But in chapter 5, it's at the very end of his reign when he will die. So now Daniel is reflecting back on what he had experienced sometime before. Now, let me say something else. Here in chapter 8, The language of the book of Daniel changes. The book of Daniel is a very interesting book because it's written in two languages. It's written in Hebrew and it's written in Aramaic. Aramaic was the lingua franca, the common language of the ancient world when the Babylonians ruled. That's why much of the Talmud, much of rabbinic writings are written in Aramaic. That's why the targums and the paraphrases are not in Hebrew but in Aramaic. Because they come out of this era when Israel was taken captive for some 70 years by the Babylonians. The synagogue originates not in Israel. Remember, Israel was given the temple, and the temple was built by Solomon. And you had the sacrifices going on in the sanctuary. But when Israel was taken captive by the Babylonians, the temple was destroyed. And the question was raised how do we maintain our faith without a temple? The Jewish people taken into captivity created synagogue life. And they took what were the rudiments of temple worship and they placed them into daily, weekly, and daily worship experiences in their gathering places known as the synagogues. It became the place of prayer. It became the place of study, the Beit Midrash. It became the place of prayer, Beit Filah. Everything that went on in the temple was now occurring in the synagogue with the exception of the sacrifices of animals. And because they now were in a foreign land and the common language of that land was Aramaic, much of their writings were now written in Aramaic. So when Daniel writes his book, in Daniel chapter 1, it starts out in Hebrew. As he gives us a synopsis of how it was that he and his companions came to become captives of the Babylonians. When we look at chapters 2 through 7, he now switches from Hebrew to Aramaic. And the reason is that the visions that Nebuchadnezzar has, the vision that Daniel will have in chapter 7, are visions that have to do with the Gentile nations per se, or preeminently. It involves Israel, but the focus is really on what's going on among the Gentile nations, what God's plan is for those Gentile nations that will come on the scene of history. And thus he writes it in the language that is reflective of the Gentile nations of the era in which he wrote, which was Aramaic. So that, for example, if it was today that Daniel lived and he happened to be here in the United States, and he wanted to write about what God's intentions are for the nations of the world, he may have chosen to write it in English, because that is the common language of this nation, which is not the Jewish nation. So, in a similar way, what Daniel does is he writes in Aramaic. Now, in chapter 8, through the rest of the book, he switches back to Hebrew, because the visions that now Daniel has... Are visions that involve the nations of the world, but particularly with regard to their impact on the Jewish people. So now he switches back to Hebrew, and the focus is God's plan and intentions for the Gentile nations with regard to Israel and her future. So in chapter 8, Daniel says that he receives a vision after the one that had already appeared to him which is found in chapter 7, which we'll go back to at another time. In my vision, he was in the citadel of Susa, which is the capital of the Persian Empire at the time. It is what is known as Shushan. And we read of Shushan in the book of Esther, which uh, we'll be celebrating Purim in the, in the month of February. And so now he's in the capital city. By the way, Susa or Shushan is about 150 miles north Along the per- from the Persian Gulf into modern-day Iran today. And he looked up, and there before me he saw a ram with two horns standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other and grew up later. So he sees a ram. The ram has two horns. The two horns are uneven. One horn is larger than the other, and the horn that is larger than the other grows up larger than the other one secondarily. So you got these two horns. One is smaller, one is larger, and then all of a sudden the larger one grows up to be larger than the former one. Does that make sense? Okay. Well, Jag, what can you do? And <laughs> And so... Oh, boy. So in verse 3, I, I looked up, and there, one of the horns was larger than the other. Verse 4, I watched the ram as he charged toward the west. So he's located in the east. So from your perspective, that would be here. Okay, the land of Israel is here. The land of Iran, Persia, Iraq is here. So it's starting in the east. And notice what he, it says. It charged toward the west. It charged toward the north. And it charged toward the south. No animal could stand against him. None could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes came from the west. So we've got the ram with the two horns coming from the east. We've, and it moved south, west, and north. Now we've got a goat with a notable horn that's located in the east. And the text tells us uh, this prominent horn between his eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. He came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at him in great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him. The goat knocked him to the ground, trampled on him, and none could rescue the ram from his power. The goat became very great, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off, and in its place four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Another way of saying to the four corners of the earth or covering the whole world. Out of one of them came another horn. Out of one of those four horns came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land, the land of Israel. It grew until it reached the host of heavens, and it threw some of the starry host down to the earth, trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the prince of the host, It took away the daily sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Because of rebellion, the host of the saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, perhaps an angel, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? And the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the rebellion that causes desolation and the surrender of the sanctuary and of the host that will be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, it will be 2300 evenings and mornings. A lot of discussion on verse 14. I understand it to mean 2300 evening and morning sacrifices then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. In other words, 2,300 evening and mornings would really equal about three, three and a half years. Now in verse 15, while I, Daniel, was watching the vision, trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man, and I heard a man's voice from the Ulai, this river, this canal, calling, Gabriel Tell this man the meaning of the vision. I believe this is the first place where an angel is named in all the Bible. And Gabriel, of course, will appear in the Brit Hadashah to reveal to Mary the birth of the Messiah of Israel. So here we have the first of one of the angels that are named in Scripture. The other is Michael, who is the archangel. They're the only two angels that are named. And this is the first time Gabriel is brought to the fore. And as he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. Another very interesting expression because while much of what Daniel sees has to do with a period of time that we would now call history, nevertheless, there's something about those historical events that reflect upon the last days which are still yet future to us. So much of what he sees is past But much of what occurred in the past has ramifications for the future, as Gabriel is telling Daniel. And while he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. And then he touched me and raised me to my feet. Now, if we were to reflect on some of these images, we might be able to discern them and understand them, even if the angel did not explain them, because there have already been two other images images that have been uh, revealed to us in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of an image, which had a head of gold and an upper torso and arms of silver, and then a midsection made of bronze, and then legs made of iron, and then feet part of iron, partly clay. Again, four segments to this image. Daniel 7, we haven't looked at it, but there in Daniel 7 we have these four different kinds of beasts and animals that Daniel sees, and we'll go back to it in some time, and we'll take a look at those. It seems that those two images, the image that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed of, the vision that Daniel had in chapter 7, and the images that are being revealed to him in chapter 8, all are consistent with each other. And so if we understand Nebuchadnezzar's dream as explained, as Daniel explained it to him, to Nebuchadnezzar, and we understand the beasts and their significance as that is revealed to him in chapter 7, we probably could piece it together and have chapter 8 understood. But we don't have to go through all of that because Gabriel shows up at this period, at this point, and Gabriel explains to Daniel exactly what he saw. So look at verse 19. He said, "I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath, because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. There's the second time that this vision, though, has historical realities attached to it, also have a reflection for the future. And so he's telling Daniel, all of which has something to do with the future, from Daniel's perspective, but from our perspective, much of it is already passed. But yet, those past events have something to say about the future. He said, I'm going to tell you, verse 20, the two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. So that's explained to us. We don't have to try to figure out what does the ram represent. It represents the Media-Persian empire. That helps us to understand the imagery. The reason why there are two horns was because the empire that destroys Babylon is a two-entity empire made up of the Medes, made up of the Persians. The fact that one of the horns grows up larger than the first horn and it comes up second is reflective of of the Persian entity of the medo persian empire. For when that empire rose to fame, the Medes were most dominant in the early period of its Reign. But shortly after the Medes are on the scene, the Persian entity takes control, overpowers the Median entity, and we now know that empire not as the Media Persian Empire, but simply as the Persian Empire. And thus, Daniel saw exactly how the Persian Empire would come to the fore and how it would be represented. The Median entity would be dominant first, but would be weaker. And the Persian entity would grow up after and would dominate the Median entity and would expand the empire, as Daniel saw, to the east, to the south, and to the north. And thus the Persian empire engulfed the whole then known world. And it was a powerful empire and one that attempted to annihilate all the Jews during the time of Haman when we read of that event in the book of Esther. And remember, during that period of time, there are 127 different provinces scattered out through all the then known world. Daniel is then told, if you take a look at verse 21, the shaggy goat is the king of Greece, the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes is the first king. Now, Daniel wouldn't know this by name because the Greek empire does not come to the fore until 3.30. Daniel is writing about, let's just say for the sake of of, uh, even numbers, he's writing about 5.30. That's 200 years after his time. He's writing this during Belshazzar, remember, his third reign. So it's really like around 5.60-ish or so. But Greece is not going to rise to the fore until around 3.30. It's over 200 more years to go. And Daniel is being told that most notable horn is the first king of Greece. And of course, the first king of Greece is Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great was a man of just a great pedigree. Philip of, Ma- of Macedonia was his father. His tutor-, tutor was Aristotle. So this is a man of great renown. He was 21 years old as a general. And in three years he conquered the then known world. It is amazing what he did in the short amount of time in which he lived. He died when he was 30 years old. There's all kinds of debates as to the conditions in which that caused his death. But Daniel saw this man rise to the fore. He's the notable horn, the first king of Greece, Alexander the Great. And look at the imagery. The ram, or I should say the goat, runs furiously at the ram, the Persian Empire. His feet do not touch the ground. In Daniel chapter 7, the Greek Empire is imaged by a leopard with four heads. This goat has four horns that will come up after the notable horn. The leopard in Daniel 7, that image that reflects Greece, has wings. The shaggy goat has feet that don't touch the ground. All of these images have to do with swiftness and speed and might. And when Alexander came to the fore, three major battles against the Persians, and he destroyed the Persian Empire. One of those battles was at, I forget the name of the, the river, the Granicus River or something of that sort. Around 336 it was fought. He took 35,000 troops and struck 120,000 Persians. He marched his forces directly across the river, which they did not expect, came furiously at them, just kept moving his troops and killed 40,000 Persian troops and lost 100 of his own men. It was an astounding battle, and it opened the floodgates Of the fall of Persia Alexander moved his troops All the way to India And threatened to advance Into China If it wasn't for his own troops That would mutiny against him If he continued the campaign They wanted to go home And so Alexander had to turn back But not until he had conquered The then known world And he was not even 30 years old Just a remarkable figure. And what Daniel sees is at the height of his power, he says, the horn is broken off. In his prime, in his youth, he dies. And in place of that horn are four horns that come up. And what we know of the Greek empire is that Alexander's empire did not descend to a descendant, but rather it was divided among his four generals. Lysimachus, Cassander, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. And the two who are most important to us are Seleucus, who headed up the entity of Alexander's empire that is in today known as Syria and also moves east toward Iraq and Persia. And the southern entity of Alexander's empire fell under the Ptolemaic entity, which is northern Africa, Egypt, and the land of Israel. Over the course of some 200 years, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids would be fighting each other and their descendants to control the land of Israel and the trade routes. In 175, a descendant of the Seleucids that Daniel is told of in chapter 8. A small horn, a little horn, grows up from one of those four horns. And that little horn would come to power. And notice what he tells us about him. He said in verse 9, Out of one of those horns came another horn, which started small, a little horn, but in grew in power toward the south, the Ptolemies, toward the east, Macedonia, excuse me, toward the east, getting my directions mixed up, toward the east. And notice, toward the beautiful land, the land of Israel. Now the moment the beautiful land is mentioned... We have to realize God now is concerned. Now he takes notice because Israel becomes the center of the conflict about which Daniel is uh, being told. And what happens in 175 is Antiochus Epiphanes comes to power. He called himself Epiphanes. In fact, he had coins that were stamped, what do you call it, sculpted, what do they call it? minted, minted. He had coins that were minted that read Theos Antiochus Epiphanes, which means Antiochus, the illustrative God. And he claimed to be God come in the flesh. And he began to wage war toward the south against the Ptolemies. Comes into the land of Israel around 175 or so, and he replaces the high priest with a priest of his own choosing, who was a rebellious and a betrayer of the Jewish people. He moves his troops further south. And in doing that, he, also, he was a, uh, as I've been reading more about him, he was an extremely cruel individual. In three days, he killed 40,000 Jewish people. When he moved into Jerusalem and replaced the high priest with one of his own choosing, it was then that he sacrificed a pig to the god Zeus on the altar in the temple. He then uh, arrogantly walked into the Holy of Holies to see what was therein. He forbid the practice of circumcision and the reading of the scriptures. And he placed troops throughout Israel to see that his will was enforced. He then moved south, and word was heard that he was killed in battle. And the Jewish people, in hearing this, decided that they would revolt against him and replace this current high priest with another high priest. But then Antiochus, in his march back, learned what had transpired and began to persecute the Jewish people even more uh, ferociously than he had done at the first time. About five years later, around 168 or so, he invades the land of the Ptolemies, the Egyptians, one more time. Takes his troops and has them marshaled along the Sinai Peninsula. And the are they have their troops facing them in what is today the Sinai. And while Antiochus was considering when to launch the attack, it was a Roman messenger, a Roman sentry that had come out and had asked for an audience with Antiochus. And he asked Antiochus what his intentions were because at this juncture now, around 165 years before the time of Messiah, the Romans are starting to grow in the West. And the Romans had an alliance with the Ptolemies in the south because they wanted to receive all of the food that would come out of Egypt, and there was a great deal of trade. So when the Romans were growing in power, the first thing they did was to have an alliance drawn with the Egyptians in North Africa. And so this Roman messenger comes out to Antiochus. Antiochus at first wondered, what's with the Romans? And the Romans told him they wanted to know what his intentions were. Antiochus balked. He didn't want to reveal what his desires would be. And so the Roman messenger drew his sword on the emperor of the Seleucids. And he drew a circle around him in the sand. And he said, you have until you move out of that circle to tell Rome what you plan to do. Antiochus realized he couldn't wage a war on two fronts against the Ptolemies and the Romans in the west. And so he decided that he would retreat. Again, in his anger at his loss, he comes back into the land of Israel and he now exhibits the persecution of the Jewish people, as we know, in accordance with the events of Hanukkah. Now, not only does he sacrifice a pig on the altar, but he now sets up a statue of the god Zeus in the very Holy of Holies. He not only enforces his Hellenistic ways on Jerusalem, but he sends out his armies throughout the land of Israel to see that Jews throughout the countryside are not practicing circumcision, that they're no longer worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in the midst of this conflict, a small group of Jewish men rise up in rebellion. And over a three-year period from when the sacrifice took place, a seven-year period from the time when Antiochus took control of the land of Israel, the Maccabees, known as the Hammers, that's what Maccabee means, were able to fight in a guerrilla-style warfare against the Greco-Syrian armies of Antiochus Epiphanes, and they were able to push the Greco-Syrians out of the land of Israel, and for a very short time, were again an independent nation once again until 63 B.C., when Pompey would ride into Jerusalem and claim the land of Israel for Rome. But Hanukkah is the story, as we've reflected on and as we've thought about, is the story of the deliverance of the Jewish people from this tyrant, Antiochus. And we like the menorahs we, we have done, representing the eight days that when the Jewish people rededicated the temple, which was desecrated by Antiochus, that when they came into the temple to relight the seven-branched holy menorah, which was to be kept lit perpetually, when they went to relight it, there wasn't enough oil to keep the menorah lit for eight days, which was the required period of time to manufacture oil for the holy menorah. The rabbis, the Jewish leaders began to to debate, should we light the menorah or shouldn't we? Should we wait seven days, light it on the seventh day, then it will be lit and we'll keep the menorah lit? Or what should we do? They decided to light the menorah, the miracle of Hanukkah, though we don't have proof of it. But the miracle of Hanukkah is that the menorah stayed lit for eight days, providing the priests with enough time to make oil that would be appropriate for the lighting of the holy menorah in the holy place. And thus, Hanukkah really reflects or really revolves around three major themes. There's the theme of the messianic hope, the hope of the Messiah's coming to deliver his people from all of their enemies. There is the theme of miracles, as the lighting of the menorah draws our attention to miracles. And there's the theme of dedication, even as the temple is dedicated to the Lord. Now, I just want to draw your attention to one last idea here that I wanted to share with you. Because the story of Hanukkah, the events that Daniel sees in these images, are very powerful indeed. And notice in verse 26, he says, The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given to you is true, but seal it up for it concerns the distant future. That's the third time we're told, while this has to do with what we would consider history as I've outlined it for you, It has to do not with the immediate future from Daniel's perspective, but a far distant future, which is still future to us. And we don't have time to speculate on all that this morning, but we will as we go forward in the book of Daniel. But look at verse 27. I, Daniel, was exhausted and lay ill for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision it was beyond understanding. When he says it was beyond understanding, he doesn't mean I don't know what this is about. The angel just told him. It means he can't fathom why such horror would befall his people. That's what he doesn't understand. He knows what's about to occur. The angel has told him. But he can't figure out why would God allow this and what is its ultimate, its ultimate purpose. Notice this, too, in verse 27. He says, I was appalled by the vision. You know, so often when I read commentaries on eschatology, study the last things, prophecy, it's almost as if people are looking to a a one-upmanship. Look what I understand the Bible to say, and therefore I have a notion of what's going to happen, and so everything is all right. But look at Daniel. Daniel saw it and his response was not, Boy, am I glad that I know what's going to happen in the future. But he was appalled by what he had seen. He was moved, not only emotionally, but physically. He was ill from this. Knowing the future is not meant to cause us to say, Well, I know it's going to go out, what's going to go happen or the world that doesn't take note of these things, they are in the dark, but we are in the light. It's meant to stir us up compassionately, knowing that there is great destruction that's going to befall our world. And we shouldn't be cocky about that. And we shouldn't be callous about that. We should be appalled by God's allowance of that because it will bring great horror on the world that is yet to come. And our, f- our feeling ought to be, we need to be telling people how to avoid the judgment of God that will fall. And thus we too should be ill when we come to understand more and more of God's prophetic word about the future. We too should have a sense of, this is just horrific, if that's what I understand the word to be appalled means here. But there's also a third thing that's really very interesting. What does Daniel do? He goes, I got up and went about the king's business. How often is it that people sort of cloister themselves in their knowledge and go about life in a way that is irresponsible rather than about the business that is at hand? I remember reading a story years ago about John Wesley, the famed evangelist who after he had conducted one of his outdoor, um, outdoor messages and he was speaking on prophecy, one of uh, individuals came up to him and said, if, if you knew the Lord was coming tomorrow, what would you do? And he took out his calendar and he showed the man, this is what I would do. <laughs> you know? He would go about his business. As God has led him and instructed him and has already called him to do. Knowledge of the future is not meant to make us, you know, uh, irrelevant to the world. It's meant to cause us to go about our business as unto the Lord, knowing that whatever our business is, we're to do for the glory of God. While it is still day. While we still have opportunity. While it is Still light Because the evil one who operated Through Antiochus Epiphanes Still operates today And let me just conclude With three final Final points Because I think we can really learn Something about how the evil one Works when we see How he led Antiochus To work Take a look at verse 11 When he speaks Of Antiochus this little horn Notice number one in verse 11. It took away the daily sacrifice from him. That is the prince of the host. I don't want to get into who the prince of the host is. There's a variety of opinions. Some think of it him as Michael the archangel, who is the defender of the Jewish people. Some might think of the prince of the host as the Messiah of Israel. Some as God himself. But the point I want you to see is this. It took away the daily sacrifice from him, speaking about the sacrifice in the temple. But let me tell you this one of the things the evil one will do when he wants to thwart our effectiveness is he will begin to dilute in our minds the significance of the sacrifice of Messiah in our own behalf. He took away the daily sacrifice, that was the mechanism of atonement for the sin of the nation. He took away the sacrifice, which was the way in which God was temporarily covering the sin of his people. And what God will off, uh, the evil one will oftentimes do with us is to make us consider of less significance than we should the sacrifice of Messiah, who it, by which we have eternal life, by which we experience salvation, by which we experience forgiveness of sin. By which we are united, reconciled, and restored to the living God. It will be the sacrifice of Messiah that we will lose in our minds, and we will forget the significance of his sacrifice. So, one of the things the evil one does is to take away the significance of his death in our behalf and what it means. Second thing that I notice in this is that he says, and the place of the sanctuary was brought low. Now, of course, the desecration of the altar and the temple itself being desecrated, the holy of holies. But let me submit to you that one of the ways the evil one works is not only by diluting the significance of Messiah's death in our behalf, but by tearing down the sanctuary in which we worship. I don't mean the building. I mean you and I. You know, one of the things that happens is we become lethargic in our worship. We become lethargic in our devotion to him. We allow things that occur in our lives to destroy, say, for example, the unity of the body. We allow experience that we have to rob us of what God's intentions are for us when we come, every time we come, which is to worship him and to lift up the name of Messiah. The evil one doesn't matter if we gather together, but, he does, but his desire is that we would not have Messiah first and foremost, and our worship of him would not be with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength in spirit and in truth. He will distract us from that. And as Antiochus was led to take away the daily sacrifice and to bring down the sanctuary, so the evil one will work in such a way as to make us think less of the significance of the death of Messiah and to think less of what it means to gather together to worship him and to be the temple of the living God and to walk with one another as brothers and sisters and as family members of the household of faith. And the last thing that Antiochus does, which is again a work of the evil one, is at the very end of verse 12, and truth was thrown to the ground. A sense in which we have less respect, admiration, and devotion to the word of God. And what happens is we interpret experiences in our lives on the basis of our experiences rather than the basis of the word of God. And that is our final arbiter. We must be devoted to his word and to follow it wherever it might lead. Lead. The evil one desires that his word take second place in our lives, but it is to be preeminent and foremost. So I find it interesting as we think about Hanukkah, a little different kind of Hanukkah reflection for me, but to see that Antiochus, this little horn, how he was used physically to do these things, The evil one will do spiritually, even in our lives to this day. And so, in conclusion, Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5 Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be self controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings and the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Messiah after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen.